0: Welcome to a very special episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. And
1: I'm Huma Gupta.
0: We are going to be talking about sound in Islam in contemporary Berlin. We're going to be speaking with Peter McMurray. He's a junior fellow at the Society of Fellows at Harvard. And what makes this a very special episode is that we are basically going to start off, after a very short introduction, with a composition, a sound composition that Peter has crafted. Uh, We're going to listen to it for about ten minutes. And then we're going to discuss it, jump into kind of the meat of the podcast as well, and discuss this sound composition. So, Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Many of our listeners probably know we've had a few pieces of, let's say, soundscapes, recordings from around uh, Istanbul. We've had Nina Ergen talking about the sounds of the mosque and the type of um, audio environment that is produced there. But I think what we have today is something very special. It's a specifically an ethnography through sound. And I think it's really perfect for the format of the podcast itself, which is you know radio, which is not visual in any means. So Peter, why don't you give us a very brief glimpse of what we are going to be listening to?
2: Sure. So this is uh, an excerpt from the beginning of a longer piece called God Listens to Those Who Praise Him. It was a piece I composed from field recordings made in Berlin between 2011 and 2014. That's the primary site for my own research, which focuses on contemporary Turkish life, particularly questions of Islam and sound, understood broadly. Mm-hmm. And so, this piece is—it's a composition, but I, I think of it as a kind of nonfiction composition, a kind of audio documentary. Mm-hmm. And this is the the first section of it, the introduction. And I think without further ado, maybe we can play this. I would encourage listeners to wear good headphones or use
0: good speakers. There's a lot of subtlety to this piece. Uh, I've listened to it quite a few times. Huma Gupta. I have
1: yet to listen to it. She has a fresh (laughs)
0: pair of ears. So between the two of us, we will be uh, very excited to hear this piece.
3: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قل هو الله أحد الله السمد لم يلد ولم يولد ولم يكن له كفوا أحد صدق الله العظيم الله سميع الله, الله لمن حبيد الله Çünkü bize razıcık verdikten sonra dediğimiz fark yok ben razı değilim demedikten sonra o canımız çünkü burada toplum <gülüyor> Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Thank you so much, Peter, for that fascinating uh, and very enjoyable composition. I mean, I've listened to this a few times. Huma, you're the freshest pair of ears. I'd like to know, what what are your first impressions? What did you hear? Let's just talk about what we heard and what we, I mean, just the literal sounds maybe as a way of starting off this conversation.
1: Yeah, I mean knowing that walking into this, this was supposed to be an ethnography through sound, you know, with Mm -hmm. this different, very different kind of methodology, I was immediately struck right at the beginning of the piece with what sounded like fireworks or cars backfiring or bombs. I couldn't tell because, I mean, clearly this is a composition and there's been editing done. I thought that the selection of really powerful sounds right at the beginning of the piece really kind of brings you in. Mm -hmm. I'd really like to hear you talk more about this, but, you know, we hear that, we hear um, voices, we hear kind of the resonant frequencies of different places, we hear automobiles, we hear wind, ambulances, we hear a lot of kind of Arabic sounds, like religious kind of practice. And as we're hearing all of these things, I'm thinking, you know, is... Peter trying to create a narrative for us that is supposed to communicate a particular Mm -hmm. message. Mm -hmm. Also, what is Islamic about this? Mm -hmm. The reason I ask this is because with the privileged position of the ocular, it seems like in sound studies, we're always translating visual terms to sound terms. So Uh where we have landscape, now we have soundscape. Where we have epistemology, we have acoustomology. And um, where we have, for instance, this kind of uh, modernity, we have acoustical modernity, you know, something Emily Thompson talks about. So I think that modified, hyphenated, like existence of sound, and then to then say, the sounds of um, Islamic Berlin, I think it, it calls into question, right? Like what exactly you're trying to communicate? Is this a narrative? Is this an audio collage as opposed to a visual collage?
0: I'm going to jump in just because I think uh, you put out so many wonderful questions on the table uh, that I want to also give Peter a chance to answer. Yeah. But I also just want for our listeners uh, just to kind of keep this experience of the composition fresh in our heads, right? So just to give my impressions, you know, I was also struck by this, uh, what sounded almost like bullets in a distance or b- car backfiring. It wasn't, it was, the ambigu- ambiguity was enjoyable. And then it kind of transitioned to a set of kind of ambiguous sounds, sounds of what we would consider silence, but there was, you know, people breathing or muttering or pieces. A lot of this, the ambient sounds of the city kind of constantly creeping in into the recording Uh, which I became kind of more and more aware of the more times I listened to it, after this moment of, it kind of had a moment of movement with like the siren as a sort of transition. And then it went again into a bit of silence and then it jumped into kind of, I think the, from what I understand, the kind of the four religious communities that you were an ethnographer of during your field work. I heard, let's say, a a general uh, Sunni prayer, which then maybe I think shifted to something more Shi and then a Sufi zikr uh, with the rhythmic breathing and the la 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 la. And then from there, uh, it seemed like it jumped into an alavi, jamevi performance situation. After these kind of four distinct sound areas, it kind of, in a sense, dissipated again, always kind of pushing the boundaries between what is the musical, what's the non-musical. Again, uh, you, get, you get snippets of conversation, but there's never a conversation that centers the piece in this excerpt. And then it kind of fades out, uh, at least in this excerpt. So thank you for these comments. It's
2: it's always really helpful to hear people hearing, you know, to sort right. of s- see what people's reactions are to these things. And I find myself as I'm making something like this, balancing a variety of different agendas. So one is one we might think of as a kind of knowledge-based agenda, which is what are these communities? What are they doing? What can you tell us about that? And that might be a kind of traditional mm-hmm. anthropological register of doing things, or even just an academic way of doing things. We want to know what it is that we're hearing, what it is that we're doing. Mm-hmm. I find, though, that this this kind of work opens up a couple other registers uh, to consider as well. One is, I think, an aesthetic one, and you've both sort of alluded to this in different ways. Um, not that this was my driving concern, but... Um, a piece has to open for instance. Uh, right. yeah, so I studied music composition. You spend a lot of time thinking about how something opens. You both mentioned this opening sound. Um, I don't know how much to divulge of what these actual <laughs> things are. Cause in some ways I, I prefer the ambiguity, but I'll say that these are fireworks. And in fact, right. the yeah. opening, uh, the opening section is all from a new year's Eve set of, a set of recordings on new year's Eve shortly after I got to Berlin. Hmm. Um, so there, there's a, I guess maybe a, a kind of purely aesthetic register which i think a lot of academics yeah. are wary of um certainly the history of orientalism and other projects have have shown ways that aestheticizing the other can be problematic um, yeah. mm-hmm. i might bracket a comment here and just say you know something we might come back to i think de aestheticization has its own risks and i right. feel like you know reducing everything to discourse doesn't necessarily do service to understanding across cultural barriers otherwise but mm-hmm. um one of the things thematically that I'm really interested in this opening, um, which maybe straddles between knowledge-based thinking and, you know, a sort of aesthetics, is a question of interiority and exteriority. So there's a lot of cutting back and forth. We're sort of outside in a world of fireworks and subway rides and, you know, street musicians climbing onto the, the Uban in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And then we're inside a Sufi community as they're preparing to pray. Um, you know, they are Sunni Essentially, Sunni community, and I think one of the the real distinctions that makes Berlin particular compared to, say, Istanbul or other places is that there are clear barriers between inside and outside, right. and, and it really applies to the performance of Islam, particularly. So there's no call to prayer that's public. There right. is very little that's done, even in courtyards. At the same time, you have a lot of sort of political pressure on groups that have who have their mosques sort of situated back away from so, the street, you know.
0: Let's just, I mean, since this is a, the Ottoman history podcast, <laughs> uh, uh, let's let's insert a little bit of history into here. Uh, yeah. Give us a short story of kind of who, who, what is the Turkish community, the Muslim community in Berlin? Okay, let's start with that sure. and then we'll yeah. talk about the yeah. ethnography part of it. Um, so
2: in the fall of 1961, uh, the, the Berlin Wall is, is constructed this August. A couple months later, Uh, West Germany makes a labor agreement with Turkey. This is not the first time they've done this. They've done previous agreements with places like Italy, but it's the first time that they're making this kind of labor agreement with a Muslim-majority country. And so starting in fall of 61, you have thousands of Turkish guest migrants or guest laborers um, coming, and they settle in many places, but Berlin becomes a really central place for that, and particularly the areas near the Berlin Wall. At Mm -hmm. that point, that was the least desirable real estate probably in all of West Germany and those neighborhoods too this very day remain um you know really the center of turkish culture in berlin of course you know to use a term like turkish we can imagine all the other kinds of groups that are right. labeled into that people coming from turkey and i think these issues, these issues then definitely predate what you know the turkish republic is but you have alevis you have a lot of kurds right. and in, and it's specifically that a lot of people are coming from rural areas so mm-hmm. people come from southeast turkey Uh, rather than coming from Istanbul, though there is some of that. Um, And so you end up having sort of competing cosmopolitan identities. We have these groups of people who are essentially rural, coming from rural spaces, moving to Berlin versus a kind of Istanbul identity of Turkish modernity. Um, There's a lot of kind of cultural back and forth about what's happening in in Berlin and Germany. So let let me give an example of one of these communities um, that I find particularly interesting. And it, it it ties a lot of these issues across sort of older conversations or that is conversations dating back into the Ottoman past and as well as things right now. Um, One of the congregations I worked most with was a Halvati Jarahi Sufi group. Mm -hmm. Um, The Jerahi order was founded uh, right around 1700 um, in Istanbul and it's an interesting group. They call themselves the Son Tarikat, the last Tarikat that was sort of sanctioned to be established. I mean, uh-huh. they're, they're a branch of Halvetia, but, um, and they're very strong. They're one of the, as, I, as far as I can tell, they're one of the groups that has weathered the sort of last 90 years um, of the Turkish Republican experience in terms of maintaining some coherent identity, continuing their practices. What's interesting though, is that in, uh, in Germany you have then different sets of possibilities. So this Xavier mm-hmm. is, has a sort of fraught relationship with the main, the main teke in Istanbul, mm-hmm. uh, and that did, that's sort of an issue of the last twenty years of, or I guess, really the last thirty years of what it means to be Sufi. There are a lot of groups in the U.S. also that were sort of founded as affiliates of that mm-hmm. that teke and have sort of moved or initially moved right from the outset. We're moving toward more universalist kind of right. um, new age practices. This group is very insistent on maintaining edeb, maintaining a lot of these kind of markers of what I think of as authenticity, and yet they still have these kind of tensions of who should decide what kind of Sufism can be created institutionally in Germany. right? Um, And these issues then resonate back and forth between the two places pretty intensively. And that's, you know, independent of sound, but then sound becomes a really interesting marker um, in terms of how you articulate these identities, who can hold an authorized mesh, for example, the the musical rehearsals um, that that you know Sufis will use to essentially rehearse their ilahis that will be sung during a zikr uh who is authorized to to transcribe and notate you know ilahis and circulate them
0: so an ilahi is is the um the repetitive repetitive zikr so Inlahi is
2: is I don't know, maybe we might use the word hymn. It's a sort of religious song. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a it's poetry set to music. And it's sung by zakirs um during a zikr. So you know those who those who do zikr um and they're a set of musicians, some will play drums or you know, maybe other instruments. Um but the main body of the Sufis are then chanting, you know, names of God or right. you know traits of God and so on.
0: Yeah. Just to kind of follow up on one of your previous comments, like you have essentially a migrant population moving from quite rural parts of Anatolia, uh, to this kind of urban, uh, metropolis, Berlin. How does that transform their, I guess, I don't know, sonic experience? Uh, you know, the types of sounds they create, what was it like basically? I mean, were you able to access what it was like in the rural areas, what it maybe some sort of pastoralist ideal of, uh, of sound and how that transformed, um, uh, both acoustically and socially, uh, in Berlin? Like, what's the role of the city in that process?
2: Yeah, there's a a few things that come to mind. One thing right off is that many of these groups continue to go back and forth to Turkey. Uh, So this Sufi group that I just mentioned, every Easter, uh, when they have essentially spring break, Uh uh, they will travel to uh, Balakesir, where their main teke is, Um, so you have something like a spring break trip, a spring break pilgrimage, essentially. Now that's not unusual. A lot of the mosques will organize Hajj, uh, sorry, Umrah trips at that time. Also, um, you know, you get a week or two off of school. And so it's, it's relatively logistically easy to, to make these kind of trips. And so I've traveled with them and they'll end up staying in the countryside at a, you know, like a small hot springs resort and then, you know, go visit with their Sheikh frequently or he'll come to them and you start to get some sense of that contrast but even for them it's interesting it's a, many of them grew up in berlin many of them were born in berlin right uh, it it's kind of a big contrast
0: for them too you know it's a place they go to relax and get away but you haven't been able to like i mean i'm just asking if if you if you go to these villages the places obviously that are not accessible acoustically anymore to us but try to recreate what what can we imagine from the sounds from those villages and what was there before so, they, before the migration, I guess?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. That's one that, that does really go beyond the work I've done um, with olivism. I think that might be a, a place where this is, is easier to see um, right. because you've had sort of back and forth transformations. It's maybe more pronounced than what I was talking about with these Sufis that uh, in the last 30 years or so, you know, you've had this olive revival, maybe 40 years. And a big part of this has been olivies in Europe, where olivies have had the right to protest, the right to be out in public spaces, they're highlighted often as kind of model minorities because, mm-hmm. you know, women don't cover themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, the flip side of this is that olivies in Europe have have opened up their ceremonies. And I don't know the precise history of this, but um my sense is that making gem a public event started in in Western Europe. Um, so you can go now to the Gem Eve in Berlin where olivies gather for a variety of of things, but certainly for their main religious mm-hmm. ceremonies. And you or I can walk in and, and not have any problems. Whereas um the gem, the sema, which is sort of the high point of that gem ceremony used to be sacred. Now, um, you know, in in a film I'm working on, I have footage of them performing the sema out on the street as part of the beginning of a wow. protest. Mm-hmm. Um so you have this this sort of emphatic openness now, where right. I think in the villages traditionally, you know, a dede would have gone from house to house and talked to people, you know, done dungeon in a home during winter. And you know, so my Saz teacher will would tell me stories about this. Right. But uh, you know, it's it's obviously a very different thing than to go to Tunjali to some village around there and, and sort of see this happening. And it seems like it's also changing now as, you know as customs change in Europe and people come back and forth and day days move back and forth, the more things change, the more or
0: whatever. Right. So I think this will touch upon a question that Huma wanted to ask, which is kind of You've opened this a nice question of kind of the interiority and exteriority of these spaces and their acoustic components, and in your recording, uh, in your composition, you know there, the sound of the city was very present. I, just, just really briefly
2: about what makes the city space so different. I think, especially a migrant city, is that in Berlin, all these things coexist within a fairly small geography. So you would not have. I mean, now you'll have this in Istanbul, but uh, you know, previously, most of the Shi'i, Communities in Berlin and also now in Istanbul come from other, so they're all coming from Eastern Turkey, and and yet you find them a block away from you know the Sufi mm-hmm. group or you know a block away from other Sunnis who would have never otherwise encountered Ja'fari Shiites uh, in day to day life. So you start to have a, a question of proximity. What does it mean to be close to one another? Um, sometimes that's audible proximity. Sometimes it's not. But um, but it certainly remaps. Sort of Turkish sociality in a new migrant space.
1: Following up from that, I I have a question about the methodology of doing ethnography. You know, through sound. So, you know, talking about listening, recording, editing, representation. Um, when you talk about interiority and exteriority, um, one of the first questions I had in my mind is, what is the recording equipment that is being used? Because, mm-hmm. on the one hand, you you're the subjective listener um, but you also have this technological apparatus that listens in particular ways and by proximity to these sounds right and your position in that cityscape uh, the recording will be different Um, and regarding interiority and exteriority there's always the question right of what kinds of resonant frequencies are being picked up we hear like a man cough. We hear these things, right? So there's the resonant frequency of the body. There's the resonant frequency of a space. Um, there's and, also
0: the my one of my favorite sounds in the thing was the uh, trace of the, that little beeping hum that you yeah. get when the uh, cell phone signals. comes <laughs> into your recording. Program. Yeah.
1: So I, I guess, you know, based on that, it's interesting um, for, uh, I think, our uh, listeners to hear you talk about how you negotiate between kind of your own position, the recording equipment and the resonant frequencies of these spaces that you're trying to represent. And to what extent do you expect that your, the listener will be able to distinguish between interiority and exteriority because the, the public azan, like what is that compared to the a ritual taking place in a, in a closed space and were you intentional about you know wanting to uh, give a sense of space and place through your composition?
2: So there's, there's a couple different aspects to this. Um, one, I think, relates to what the original piece was, which was a multi-channel composition, mm-hmm. um, where after this segment that we heard, it sort of broke into trying to recreate these spaces a little bit more carefully. Most of the recordings were made with four-channel audio recorder that is handheld and so is relatively small and usually close to me. Usually I'm holding it, though sometimes I'll set it up in the room. Sometimes I'll have a couple in the room. But um, you know, a lot of it was actually trying to to give listeners a sense of space. That is, what is it like not just to hear say a jerahi sufi zikr, but to hear it in the space that it happens in versus the Olive Gemevi, which is a very big space, which uses amplification. Which yeah. you can hear echo within the the yeah. building itself, um our ears immediately tell us, oh, that's a big space, um whereas you know the the sort of middle part of this segment that we heard um it's this group in a room that's maybe i don't know twenty feet by twenty feet, um, relative low ceilings, you know wooden floor, so you get some resonance from that, but I think you you can start to hear these things. Um, you can tell that you're closer to individuals you can hear them breathing for example you can hear them rubbing their hands on their pants you can hear the cell phone there's a lot of things that you get um, even just by virtue of not having amplification in the room Um, so I think there's an aspect of space that that sound actually picks up probably better than our eyes in many instances um, or more intuitively now whether or not you know it you know minute six and a half that you're inside or outside. I'm less concerned with that, um, <laughs> though, though it's certainly not an uninteresting question. Um, yeah. I think in general, I'm less interested in, in making it clear so you could define what each sound is, mm-hmm. that you know, "Oh, here we're starting to hear, the Daval and Zurna We're at a wedding that's happening outdoors in front of an apartment building. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. Uh, and there there may be more to be said about mm-hmm. that, but that's not the core of my project. I mm-hmm. will say, though, that uh, with the Davos, we're in a segment here, it illustrates something that I found really interesting, which is that when you have a, a recorder on and you have your headphones on, um, you hear things that you may not hear otherwise. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Ziga Vertov, the Soviet filmmaker, would talk about a kino eye, you know, something where when you have a camera, you start to see things differently, you see mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. views of the world, different framings, and I think it's true with with a sound recorder too. So that was an interesting experience why I heard this well before I could hear it with my actual ears because I was walking away from having conducted an interview and I thought, oh, I should just record while I'm walking down the street. It's a fairly lively street. And I, you know, I started to hear this on the recording um, before I ever would have heard it with my own ears.
1: Um, did the, the fact that individuals, did they always know that you were recording them?
2: Yeah, I mean, if I was not in a public space like out in the streets, then I would always be very clear in talking with the group and make sure that that was known. um I think in some cases uh I guess that may not be true in every case with with some large group recordings um you know, I would talk with the heads of the the sort of institution, the gem of it was it was hard to hard to talk with everyone who was gathered for a gem right but um yeah I mean it, and early on in a lot of those settings that have a video camera, so it was very clear that it was being recorded. But um.
0: I think kind of you mentioned this is about sound in Islam in Berlin. And, you know, there's some of these sounds that we immediately recognize as Islamic, like uh, the act of prayer or a zikr or things like that. But you also recorded a variety of different um, non what we would say non-Islamic sounds, right? Uh, How did you decide when to kind of start recording, when to draw that boundary or kind of, even though I realize that you're purposely trying to make this ambiguous, can you give us kind of an insight into your thoughts about what makes these sounds Islamic or not, and how how does this complicate our notion of Islamic? Um, so it seems like there's maybe
2: two questions here. When, when would I record and what is Islamic? Okay. Uh, and they're both interesting and, and kind of different. So I started the project not thinking I was doing a project on Islam. I thought I was doing something on Turkish musical practices in Berlin. I, yeah. I thought that the city would be my unit of study, mm-hmm. but I did not think this is going to be about Muslim communities here or there or anywhere else. Um, and there is something about the serendipity of fieldwork that I met a bunch of Sufis pretty early on, and I met uh, a number of Olivies also very early on, and that sort of took on its own momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for anyone who's made media, you know, documentary media, there is a sense that you want to be capturing a lot because it's not always clear at any given moment what it is that you need to be capturing but also I think it's important to in terms of sort of establishing a relationship to make clear that with some of these communities that I was there to be recording not just to be talking Um, so that wasn't a surprise but that that was clear that oh I'm interested in actually documenting and preserving what it is that you do every Friday night I mean not that I was recording every Friday night at Zickers but you know to make clear that Part of what I was hoping to get out of attending was to be able to record these things, to give those copies back for sure, but also to have sort of a document for myself to see, okay, one week to the next, they use these names and not those names or whatever else. Um, The question of what is Islamic, though, I think is um, a much more complex question, uh, and it goes in so many directions. Um, Thinking about, you know, what Shahab Ahmed has written recently, uh, to think about as some kind of I mean clearly there's a there's a lot that could be said about this. Um I often wonder whether it makes sense to include Olive material in this. Um mm-hmm. there were I, I was not recording any time when this happened, but on more than one occasion when they would have self-bet conversations where the days would sit and sort of field questions, uh young people, you know, Olive teenagers would raise their hands and say, I get harassed in school because my Sunni friends say I'm not Muslim. Are we Muslim?
0: Uh-huh.
2: And uh you know that's hearing how that was sort of negotiated as a community was really interesting, yeah, um so certainly I'm making judgments here about what what constitutes Islamic um and you right. know that may or may not fit into into those boxes clearly.
1: you mentioned earlier about the um aesthetic versus kind of de aestheticized representation and how um in many ways doing a composition like this you know is trying to. I guess, recover the aesthetic as as a legitimate kind of realm for doing ethnography and uh, in pursuit of knowledge in an academic setting. Um, But given that, in terms of your process when you're composing, I'm curious about the aesthetic strategy. You know, is, is there a narrative strategy? Is it about eliciting an affective response? You know, what as the composer is being communicated for you?
2: You know, it's it's an interesting question. This relates to the the one before that um you know it's sort of layered. I guess you know, the aesthetics is already predetermined by certain discourses. So one thing that was very much important for me in this piece and the title of the piece, Semi Allahim and Hamida, God listens or hears those who praise him. Um, there's a, a very clear notion in Islam that God is a hearing, seeing being, that God is somehow uh sensorily engaged with the world. Um, and in fact, that uh, there's there's a strong discourse also that God is interested in beautiful things, um, and I think in the work of people like Navid Kermani, we see a push to try and reestablish the aesthetic within Islam. You know that God uh, God is beautiful; mm-hmm. that God has this capacity to think about aesthetics, or not. I and mean, that sounds reductive (laughs) uh (laughs) but you know that 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 is part of a long-standing tradition in islam to talk about and i think again with the question of sound that it's a long-term issue about sound so in many ways when i think about what sound studies is i feel like islam already has centuries of of thinking to weigh in on this you Mm -hmm. know relatively Mm -hmm. new conversation that uh tends to be you know pretty
0: western-centric anglo-american in its orientations now for our listeners we are going to jump into another composition, another, let's say, clip of audio sound that we will listen to, again, from Berlin. We won't tell you right now what it is. Put on your headphones closely, pay attention, and we will listen to this
3: (laughs) olmuyor Birinci kamyonun önünde duran görevliler dört tane görevli lütfen buraya gelsin. Dikkat et. çal Allah 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 <gülüyor> ele, ali ali ele, bile bile de, Bismişah, Allah, Allah. Düşüyüm yeri de, düştüm
0: the Autumn History Podcast. I'm Nin Shafir, uh, Huma Gupta is with me, and we're speaking with Peter McMurray. Uh, We've just listened to another clip recorded and edited and composed uh, by Peter. Why don't you give us an introduction to this piece? Sure. So this is a work in progress. These are
2: recordings taken from a protest that happened last year um, in July in Berlin they happen essentially every year as a commemoration for the massacre in, in Sivas of Olivies in the, um, Manama Hotel. And so each year, uh, the Alavi organization in Berlin arranges for, I shouldn't say each year, but in recent years they, they arrange for two trucks. They'll put uh, Balama players on the back of them Mm -hmm. singing and performing. And they march through, um, the neighborhoods of Neukölln and Kreuzberg, which are kind of the heart of, Turkish Berlin. Um, and so what we are hearing here are some of the various sounds of protest of commemoration, uh, briefly chants of, you know, be afraid fascists, (laughs) uh, stuff like that. Um, but you know, you have this sort of confluence of, something that's you know very lamentful almost like a funeral procession um a political protest and also kind of a dance party uh yeah. which seems like a perfect berlin event um, <laughs> but also i think really this is part of the craft of public olivism in germany now to to pull off these kinds of very complicated events that have a lot of moving parts
0: mm-hmm. um, so this goes back i mean uh, to what we mentioned earlier kind of the shift of the performative uh, aspects of the gem, uh, the gem ceremony into these more public spaces like streets, uh, and so forth, like that. Exactly.
2: And one thing that is not uh, audible here, and this maybe points up the shortcomings or the limitations of a, a purely sound-based work. So a lot of this comes actually from video recordings that I made. Um, but there's a performance of a Sema here we mentioned earlier that's public. Um, It's done on a street that's just been blocked off. It's a pretty busy street. They block it off for the protest. This is at Hermannplatz, uh, right in the heart of Neukölln. And, you know, maybe 15 or 20 young Alevis who are part of a gem or of a Sema group uh, then perform Sema while the the Balama player is playing Czech Kataru. Um, by Davut Sulari, uh, so you know, just listening to it, you hear okay. They're they're playing the song, you know, this Türkü, um, but to see a sort of public sema dance to it, I think is a very different right. experience, and mm-hmm. um, you know, so you get some feeling of that, but would be un and un, unknown otherwise.
1: It's interesting you say feeling. Um, I think it takes us back to a, a theme that has kept coming up in this podcast. Um, of of the affect so the both the audio and visual components of this performance are certainly um intended to elicit some sort of affective response um in the viewer and the participant mm-hmm. and now you as the recorder and witness <laughs> of this um performance um what kind of compositional strategies you know do you use or how do you play with the notion of affect as a composer? Because there's already the embedded affect in the performance. Mm-hmm. And then in the curation of the sound, in the editing, in the decisions, the micro decisions of which sounds are going to be more legible and which are going to be illegible. Um, and how you adjust those levels, <laughs> the, the background work of editing. Um, how do you think about affect?
2: So affect is clearly a really important part of this, and I feel like we're in a fortunate moment where um, theorists like Deleuze and Guattari have kind of highlighted affect for us. Uh, We're in a sort of affect theory moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Sensory studies is kind of on the rise. There are obviously risks to sort of getting too affective, um, but I do think that it's, it's important that this be part of the conversation, part of the question of what is the embodied experience of being here or, you know, even the microphonic experience of being here. Um, and then the question of how it gets composed, I think is a, a complex one and different people have very different takes on this. Um, I've heard Steve Feld, who's a well-known composer of this kind of anthropologist talk about always wanting to have one piece of sound that is recorded. That's indexical to real time that hmm. is running throughout. Um, I find that I actually prefer to avoid layering. So Steve is then layering on top of that. And mm-hmm. so you always have more than one sound present or, you know, nearly always. Um, I find that, that um, you know, as you said, Huma, that many of these moments are so affective on their, in their own right that uh, it almost feels like my only job is to let them speak for themselves in a sense to sort of mm-hmm. reproduce them. Um, and, you know, some of the most powerful experience I've had as an ethnographer have been in certain spaces, sometimes with a microphone on, sometimes not on, um, where the sort of affective level of a ritual is sort of ramping up mm-hmm. because that's part of the ritual. Um, I think you see a lot of this during Muharram, both yeah. with alavis and also with jafari Shiites, um, and uh the this contours, the emotional contours, the affective contours of what they're doing, I think elicit these issues you know you sort of could not screw up the editing of this uh because the material itself is so rich and in fact i've uh i'd love to play parts of a piece that i composed actually it was the first real piece i i created as a piece um it's a composition based on a four-channel recording of a jafari shiite uh matem medjlisia sort of gathering commemorating um you know during the first 10 days of the month of Muharram. um I think this is from day eight, but uh, you know it's it's a nightly gathering, and there's a lot of contour to this. It starts with a sermon that leads into a sort of retelling of the events at Karbala, where the imam is weeping. Uh, it then leads into uh, singing mercy poetry mm-hmm. and and culminates in a kind of interesting place.. <laughs>
3: Zeynep avlına ağlam olur, anası Zehra'nın bir var idi. <gülüyor> Hüseyin'e bir eski köyneyi vermişti. <gülüyor> eski köyneyi niye vermişti? <gülüyor> Zeynep. Baktı Hüseyin'imi şehit <gülüyor> elbiselerini de gayret ediyenler. <gülüyor> Zeynəb və əşki köynəyi usaydı və qeydirdi ki, O düşmən usaydı salamın, Bədəli çıblak, Bədəli sıcaq qumlar üstə atmasınlar, Və əşki köynəyi qeydirdi balama. Dövrə aşırı vəxti gördülər, Gördülər düşmən bədəllərdən ayrı dəbdə, Zeynəb elə qaça qaça gedir meydanə, Kanın Hüseyin'in bedeninin baş ucunda Allah görür başta da bedende baş yokluğunu <Gülüyor> ay merde ay, <sen. Gülüyor> ay merde kardeş ay sus sus kardeş, kardeş. değin de anladım. I'm not the one who's got the power. I'm not the one who's got the power. I'm not the one who's
0: mm <laughs> chance for Hezbollah we uh come back to our podcast <laughs> <laughs> why why were they chanting Hezbollah
2: at the end so first of all i have not gotten a great answer to this i think that when i ask about hezbollah uh the answers get very short
0: <laughs> um <laughs> and these are this is a turkish this is a
2: turkish community so most of them come from udur uh mm-hmm. very near to iran um and I think it actually speaks mostly to the, the kind of powerful image that Hezbollah is for the larger Shiite world. But, um, you know, you have, we've mentioned sort of mapping, and this is a, a strange kind of mapping where you have, you know, a lot of these, a lot of the youth who are leading this chant, they're young men from maybe the age of 15 to, to 30, most of whom were born in Berlin, grew up in Berlin. Their native language is, you know, for many, they would say they're more fluent in German than Turkish. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet they're performing these these Mercier poems that are in Turkish. And yet the culmination of this all is this chant for Hezbollah. Ya Abba Abdullah, Nahumat Hezbollah. But even that I think points to, you know, framing what Hezbollah is within the kind of heritage of the Ahlibayt and thinking about um Hussein and Ali mm-hmm. you know, Abdullah as the sort of genealogy of rightful believing and, and protest. And I, I you know, obviously the events at Karbala have this amazing multivalence that are mm-hmm. lament, their protest, um, kind of all at the same time.
0: And another thing I think we, we heard in that recording is uh, that you pointed out to us is that, um, you know, this lament, this chanting, shifting into, um, the call to prayer, the kind of the call to prayer, almost layered over that and real, it, within that one space. So this brings up, I think, an interesting question, which is kind of, again, just to go back to this, what is your role as an editor? You know, what do you see? You call, I mean, you purposely call these compositions, not necessarily just soundscapes or even sound mapping. You know, you've gone to Berlin, you've done these ethnographies. How do you see your role as an anthropologist uh, expressed in your editing of these, um, uh, I don't know recordings. Yeah. I mean the, the terminology issue is a hard one.
2: And in some ways I'm happy to leave that to other people to sort out. Uh, I don't write about my own compositions or, or pieces very often. And, um, mm-hmm. I don't know what they should be called. Some people do use soundscape composition to the degree that the word soundscape is useful to me. I think actually this composed kind of form is, is maybe the most interesting, you know, the word itself etymologically would suggest the scape part of it would suggest some kind of creation, yeah. uh, on the part of not just a passive recordist or a person standing on a street. Um, to me, the idea that like the soundscapes, everything around us seems useful, but maybe a little too vague, whereas something that you create, you know, maybe that's an interesting way to think of it. Um, I see my role as variable. I mean, I see my role as trying to convey something that I'm not conveying through words. Mm. Uh, and so different projects take on, I guess, different, different sort of, personalities or have different characteristics so the piece we just heard initially um i sort of premiered it on an electroacoustic music concert i called the piece uh, holy weeping in parentheses amplified um to me the weeping part is actually the most powerful mm-hmm. trajectory here and you have not just the imam but certainly the imam with this kind of practiced, but obviously also very powerful weeping uh, you have people all around you weeping um you know, I had to turn down the levels because the microphone that the, the, the imam is using is actually very loud. But uh, when played at its truest volume, which I did a little bit more in the concert version, um, you know, you feel like you you hear people literally who are sitting next to me during the event weeping. You know, you hear sort of all the, the sounds that come with that. Um, mm-hmm. And those can never really fit into academic writing. I mean, I could describe yeah. like, oh, so so-and-so was like weeping and snorting and, you know whatever else and meanwhile their kids were like climbing on top of them playing on their iPhone uh, you know I mean I could try and do that descriptively but in some ways the power of it I think defies description on some level Or, yeah. you know you'd get bogged down trying to describe it some listeners won't have heard that some listeners are going to attend to other things and that's fine too yeah um, but this piece was minimally edited it was composition in the most literal sense of putting one thing next to another I just cut out the segments that I felt like I mean, it was sort of the minimal version of the ritual, you know, to take not four verses of a song typically, but one to try and give that full arc of things. And it still was 30 minutes long, yeah, um, which is pretty lengthy for a concert piece.
0: This one you minimally edited, but that 10-minute excerpt that we started the podcast with was kind of much more heavily edited, had a, you know, uh, an ear, was attuned to kind of the aesthetics of the sound itself and so forth. I mean, how did you, can you give us a kind of an insight into those decisions and what, why you set those up? Sure. Um, you
2: know, there's, there's a kind of personal trajectory in trying to figure out what one might do with sound pieces. It's not really an established genre. And so, yeah. in some ways, this piece that we've just heard with these Jafari Shi sounds, um, I was trying to figure out what to do with it. It felt like it was a ritual and in some ways out of maybe both respect and also bewilderment, I didn't know what to do with it. It seemed like it was so powerful on its own terms. Um, And clearly in a Western musical tradition, we have the practice of like performing masses on concerts. So like, it's not unheard of to think, okay, here's the ritual. This ritual is worth your attending to. With the other material that we started with, um, I think with that piece, especially in the opening, I was trying to maybe make some kind of argument or to to set up a listener i guess maybe i was trying to set out an agenda where a listener would hear contrast between a city that is um unmarked it's Mm -hmm. just berlin normal berlin you know whatever in scare quotes with sort of cuts to material that that poke through and say but wait a minute there are other people here Mm. um Many of these things, as I mentioned, happen in interior spaces that are not really accessible to, you know, quote unquote, average Germans, although there's nothing preventing them from going to a mosque, from going into many of these spaces. They're mostly extremely welcoming, Uh, even when they don't necessarily want me there. (laughs) They will still say it's a mosque. It's open to everybody. Um, So I think there is a sense that, you know, these places are inaccessible and yet Mm -hmm. nothing is preventing them from being accessible for the most part.
0: But you also, for instance, you said, like, you don't layer sounds, right? This isn't, uh, you're not trying to get across a temporal aspect. This is much more you moving through the city. I mean, the way I listen to it, you moving through the city, you're exploring different spaces uh, audibly rather than, like, you know, 24 hours in Islamic Berlin or whatever.
2: Yeah, and I I think that there is, well, there's a few different moves that you can hear in the first 10 minutes, so it opens with what I think of as this kind of edited passage. You know, it, it literally is being outside on New Year's Eve, then getting on a train on New Year's Eve and going to a certain place. And then, you know, there's some editing sleight of hand that then changes days and yeah. someone else is walking out of that same that same uh, subway station. But that kind of general route is a possible route truncated. Um, it then jumps to this material that's cut more, more quickly, back and forth, little, um, you know, little excerpts, uh, a kind of montage that is intended to, juxtapose one thing against another that you could never actually be in those spaces in, in any kind of temporal sequence so
0: on that note uh i just want to go back to how this was you envisioned this being performed or experienced to the listener obviously podcast listeners you're listening to this through your headphones i presume but this isn't how you when you performed it it was a 16 channel audio piece so can you explain how people how you envisioned them experiencing it Sure so let 's imagine ourselves
2: sitting in a room where we 're all facing the same direction. Um, the beginning of the piece was in stereo, meaning two speakers one re- one right, one left, that is in front of us so um, I think that 's an experience actually that having headphones on or having computer speakers on reproduces relatively well um, that 's a kind of standard form of electronic music composition mm-hmm. of of sound as we experience it in general right. it 's a you know a piece that you can play on on your phone or whatever else. Um, that lasts for about 10 minutes and then it opens up into a much bigger space. Literally. I mean, it was a room with 16 speakers around it. Uh, it was a ring of eight at about, you know, ear level and then a a ring of eight on the ceiling. Um, so you actually had some vertical space too, although I find that hard to, hard to hear in that setting. Um, in a concert hall where you have a higher room or a higher ceiling, you can actually hear some of that, but, the sequence of events then after that, if we you know to talk about it in that way, it was sort of this introductory expository material and then a development. So this mm-hmm. is a very classical form of composition. You know, here is the subject and now we're going to develop it. And the development was to sit with some of these spaces longer. So you hear these ten fifteen second excerpts from you know from Jarahi Sufis, from Jafarishi's, from Alivi's and so on. And then that's going to be expanded upon later, uh spatialized around you in essentially four channel experience
0: uh when you when i read about it i thought that it was like 16 speakers in a room and then you would walk between different speakers and then you would get like you know sometimes you'd hear two or three of them playing at the same time or and then you would walk or there but you're really it's like a group of people sitting down and then sound is coming at you from different directions yes that's right uh and uh you know, thinking about projects like the things that
2: Nina and others have worked on, you know, trying to recreate or, you know, regenerate what the spaces are of certain mosques in, mm-hmm. Su- you know, Soleimani or something. Um, one interesting thing that's been happening now is that some of those groups will measure the kind of acoustics and then essentially create a piece, you know, usually they'll sing, you know, Byzantine chant or yeah. something, but in a space that can recreate a speaker configuration that would give you the sense of you know, through the same basic technology of being in Suleimania or in being of, in being on Hagia Sophia, you know, I guess is where that was being done. Um, so there, there's kind of, there's a lot of directions that these things can take you. And I think it leaves the question of what do you want to do with it? What do you want to compose? Um, so I'm actually working now on an installation piece that would be exactly what you're talking about, where these things exist in fixed places. And if you want to be closer to them, you walk toward them, you know, you might hear them overlapping, but, um, you know, if you want to experience it, you choose as a listener to sort of have some more agency in that process. Mm-hmm.
1: I have a comment. I think that, you know, this work is extremely exciting for um, kind of the future of sound studies in the sense that, you know, we talk a lot about not having the adequate vocabulary or always translating from visual ocular terms um, and hyphenating it to talk about sound. But I think that... um one of the most important things is to actually use sound as the the space from which we theorize about ethnography, from which we theorize about history. And I think that the even the academic, because you are a full academic in your own right, even though I know that this work somehow falls outside and inside that work in different ways. Um, what's exciting is that f- within this composition, you can actually start theorizing about acoustomology. You can start theorizing about Um, ethnography of sound in interesting ways that you couldn't from purely textual analysis Um, and in fact it would be interesting if other people could respond to this composition through their own sounds through their own theories about ethnography but using composition as the medium from which to articulate a rebuttal or a counter-argument
2: absolutely and i've i've in some conference presentations of these kinds of things, I've encouraged people to make a movie back at me or to make a sound recording back at me in the same way we would, you know, sort of respond to an article or something um, that seems plausible and, and a reasonable thing to do within the context of sort of Ottoman studies. More generally, I think obviously it raises different questions and different issues. It's hard to generate sound recordings, um, of the 15th century for obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, but I think, uh, as a number of scholars have have started to do in Ottoman contexts, but also in other places, um, yeah, I just heard a paper by Ziad Fahmi talking about sort of Kyrene soundscapes in the first half of the 20th century, mm-hmm. especially street hawkers and vendors, and a lot of these things are inscribed in some way. You know, we think of sound recording as maybe a particularly rich form of of inscription, let's say, but um, you know, a lot of texts are using words to try and capture what what exactly a salesman of water is going to be saying and calling out. And these things get inscribed with different degrees of fidelity, we might say, but um, but traces exist in a lot of ways. And certainly once you hit the 20th century with recording, mm-hmm. uh, you know, recorded objects are themselves great places to to be looking at as kind of source documents for history. So mm-hmm. I think there's a whole, a whole range of approaches. Mine is maybe more explicitly about making sound, but using sound objects as as sites of research. Uh, I think these things all fold into them, into one another quite a bit.
0: So with that, unfortunately, we have to come to an end. We have many more questions, but unfortunately, we just don't have the time to continue this discussion. But I, be, I encourage you to check out the, uh, go to com. There you can find a bibliography that Peter has provided us uh, and more links to kind of some of his video and audio recordings. Now, before we end, uh, Peter is going to give us a send-off story.
2: I think one of the questions in this context of an Ottoman history podcast is how does this connect to a past that is you know very distant? One other place that I find interesting is sort of oral tradition and lore. Um, I heard a story from a mosque administrator in Berlin that uh, is easily Googleable but not very well citable, uh, <laughs> uh, and it's about Mimar Sinan building Suleimania. and he, And the story goes that he was in Suleimania and some Contractor, or guard sees him smoking hookah in there, and uh, the the guard panics. He goes and tells Sultan Suleiman, who comes and you know yells, at him, what are you doing in here?" And he says, "It's just water in this pipe. Uh, I'm using the bubbles to test the acoustics." <laughs> and I don't actually know exactly what this means, but in telling some people these stories, I've I gather there's a larger body of lore about seen on and there's reasons why i'm quite sure this is historically not true but in some ways i think that's less important than again thinking about ways that sound gives us access to to questions and agendas that might be other than what we would ask in in other settings
0: okay well on that note
2: thank uh, you so much this is such a
1: rich uh, and wonderful conversation thank
0: you